Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. It's a reality of life that we'll all face hardship. Sometimes we hit little bumps in the road. Other times we fall into valleys so deep, we wonder if we'll ever emerge. We can't avoid pain. It's part of life. And our wiser self knows we don't want to avoid all pain because our challenges teach us lessons that the good times never could. We grow stronger. We develop grit and tenacity. But sometimes, as we try to crawl out of pain, we feel stuck. The trauma we endured leaves its mark, such that we grieve not only the loss of the relationship or the life we thought we'd have, we also grieve the loss of the person we used to be. We find it hard to feel happy. We sink into depressed moods. We've lost our joy, and even worse, we worry that we no longer know how to find joy in the first place. We start to wonder, can I ever get back to me? Will I ever feel like myself again? I liked who I was pre-divorce. I liked who I was before I lost my job. I liked who I was before this trauma came and kicked me to the curb. I want to get back to me. I felt this so strongly. I remember when my second boyfriend in college, we'll call him Kyle, we dated for the last two years of college. And then I went to grad school and he went to play professional soccer. And we were kind of on again, off again for several more years. We dragged things on for way too long. So the pain also dragged on. And I remember... At the end, when it was finally over, feeling not only the loss of Kyle and the loss of what I'd hoped would be my person and the future that I had imagined we might have together, I also was grieving the loss of me, of Karen, before going through all that. I felt like I'd lost my ability to have fun, to be hopeful for the future, to have that lightness about me. Everything felt so heavy and dark. I know many of you can resonate with this. You've been there where you've been through something so hard and you're trying to put back the pieces of your life and you're doing so with a person, yourself, who doesn't even feel like yourself. You end up feeling so bitter, angry, frustrated because not only did you lose all these other things, but you also lost who you were. Today, we're going to talk about how to get yourself back, how to get yourself back to you by harnessing the power of neuroplasticity and what we now know about our neural activity. We're going to look at the neuroscience of why we feel so different post-trauma, post-breakup, post-loss, and how we can use neuroscience to reclaim ourselves and get back to who we were. 
To help me take this deep dive into neuroplasticity, I've invited Dr. Rhonda Freeman to the program. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Freeman. Dr. Rhonda Freeman is a neuropsychologist. She works with patients diagnosed with neurological conditions, and she's also the founder of NeuroInstincts, where she helps survivors of trauma and abuse with their intimate relationships. She shares neuroscience and psychology with the media, for example, Reader's Digest, Huffington Post, Newsweek, and NBC. My interview with Dr. Freeman, right after this. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, will learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood, will identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals, and will together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Dr. Freeman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think the best way to start a conversation like this is to ask you what brought you into this space. You're a neuropsychologist. I'm sure you have a lot going on in the science and in, in the lab, so to speak. But the space that you're in right now is rather personal because you're bringing your neuropsychology to relationships. So help the listeners understand what brought you to this space. Almost a decade ago, I was, you know, just kind of doing the typical neuropsychology thing in the, in the practice. And I fell in love with this man who I thought was just fantastic. We hit it off well, and the relationship moved in a direction that just seemed really odd to me. My red flags were going off like crazy. And I thought something was wrong with him. And I eventually realized that there was something wrong with him. He was on the narcissism spectrum. I, I was actually able, you know, to, to label him because of, of my background. So I kind of knew I was in trouble. <laughs> and when it ended, what shocked me so much is the state that it left me in. I was left in this decompensated version of myself. Mm. I was traumatized. I had trouble thinking well. I had trouble getting my work done. I had to take a leave of absence from work so that I could just even just try to get myself back together. And I thought, okay, it's like a normal relationship. A few months, a few weeks, I should be kind of back to normal. And it, and it wasn't like that. I spent a year in treatment with a psychologist, you know, trying to get her to help me. And all she did, unfortunately, is kind of activate my pain some more because mm. it was a lot of get it out approach, you know, talk about it, get it out, get it out. And I realized that, that I was getting worse. And so anyway, I ended up implementing my own strategies to help myself. And once I got better, and I decided to spend two years on that, once I got better, I knew that I just could not walk away because I thought, wow, this experience was so life changing. And I am somebody who's been trained to diagnose people with this disorder. And I ended up with somebody with this disorder. And I'm not saying that, by the way, in an arrogant way, as if like somebody with a PhD can't get with a, a narcissist. Obviously, we, we can. <laughs> it was just that yeah. I, I didn't see it. 
you know, and I'm trained to see it. That's the part I want to kind of bring home. And so, yeah, I couldn't walk away after that. I thought this is an area I don't see any neuropsychologists involved in. And I thought we could bring such a unique perspective to it and really help people. And so that's why I've been kind of doing my neuro instincts thing to try to help people get through this really, really tough situation. This is so powerful. And I love that you're like, listen, I have a PhD and I still got duped by a narc. And I think that's just, that's validating for my community. And so many women who, whether it's a narc or like you said, they're on the spectrum or just a straight up jerk, you know, mm-hmm. either which exactly. way yeah. we enter these relationships, we give our hearts, we get excited, we have hope for the future. And like you said, when it goes south, we oftentimes don't recognize ourselves. And then on top of the heartbreak, we beat ourselves up. I should have been able to see what was going on. Yes. I should have listened to those red flags. So then we keep yes. shame on ourselves, which doesn't mm-hmm. help. And the fact that you then went and did what I have done in the past and many of my community have done, I need to get some help. And you go to a psychologist and you start with some traditional therapy that oftentimes is helpful in many realms. But what you speak to is it sounds like you were essentially re-traumatized in therapy. You weren't getting any better. Probably Mm -hmm. the desire to explain it over and over to the therapist probably fell into the realm of ruminating, which I know the research on ruminating and depression is quite robust, that Mm -hmm. if we obsess and keep working these stories over and over in our brains, we are going to remain in that unhealthy and sad space. So bringing it back to the neuropsychology, I think that's really key because clearly what you did, you said, wait a minute, I know about this stuff more than the average person. Why don't I work my own neuropsych approach on my heartbreak? So tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, I definitely did try. I I put neuropsych to the back burner because I hadn't really seen it used with breakups in this right. way. And and I really did categorize it initially as, as a breakup. I didn't, now I completely see it was trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, it was absolutely trauma. My brain had a certain reaction. Now look at the way my brain reacted. It was the way brains react when it's traumatized. And so yeah, I decided to apply neuroscience. And so I'm sure your, your, your group is familiar with neuroplasticity. You probably talked to them about it, but for the listeners who may have not heard it from you yet, I'll just kind of tell you that neuroplasticity is when we, or rather it's our brain's ability to change and to grow and to learn in response to experiences and our thoughts. And it can be negative or positive. So for example, my relationship with my, my ex resulted in changes of the negative neuroplasticity type. It left me traumatized. It left me very anxious and uh, lots of sadness. And so he changed me for the worse. And so I decided I'm going to take control of that and purposefully implement positive neuroplasticity. And that is when you engage your brain in certain ways to try to strengthen neural pathways associated with healthy responses and positivity and and balance. And the key for me, and this is, I I made sure I was, I remember writing it down one day and it was like, Rhonda, this is all about your frontal lobes. Like get those frontal lobes back in action. And our prefrontal cortex is is our regulator. It's a part of the brain that is associated with our thinking, our problem solving, our switching away from ruminating thoughts, inhibiting negative thoughts. So like, for example, all the intrusive thoughts I was having, I had to work on that. So I purposefully asked 
activated my prefrontal cortex. And I don't want to sort of jump into all the ways I did that right this second because I want us to have like a little bit, you know, of a discussion. But I'll definitely tell your listeners some of the things I did to intentionally activate my my prefrontal cortex. I'm geeking out so, so hard over here. (laughs) The theme of my podcast Mm -hmm. is conversations grounded in psych research to help us thrive in love and life. And our motto is take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Mm -hmm. My my listeners hear it every single week. (laughs) So when you talk about being able to strengthen through intentional harnessing of your thoughts and, and those intrusive thoughts, working on ways to keep them at bay mm-hmm. so that you can, on a physiological level, create stronger neural pathways toward health, toward happiness, toward peace. This is the kind of thing that I wish you had a megaphone on the top of a mountain <laughs> and were able to proclaim this message because, Rhonda, and I think you and I would agree, the messages we hear from the culture are that you must have a neurological imbalance with your neurotransmitters. No. So you better take some medication mm. and that's you have, a, you have a damaged brain. Instead of going like, yeah, here's the corollary I always make. I don't have damaged biceps if I can't do too many push-ups right now. Mm. The fact is I haven't tried to do any push-ups for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So... I can't do push-ups, but it's not because I've damaged biceps. It's because I haven't intentionally worked at that. So help us see that really what we're talking about here is that intentional effort to create these pathways that will then make your healing process so much more fluid. And eventually you'll have a new default mode, Mm -hmm. which will be in the realm of emotional health as opposed to emotional uh, unhealth. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) 100% true. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. But one of the things I also had to do is before I got into the specifics, you know, I'm going to intentionally activate my prefrontal cortex. This goes along with what you just said, and, and it reminded me of this when you said this, is that I had to get in that right mindset. Like it wasn't like I was still feeling hugely depressed and really anxious and I decided let me do this brain game or let me do this journaling. It was like, wait a minute, I had to gear myself up to and say, Rhonda, you're going to do this. You're going to get back to your old self and this can happen because it can happen. Science tells me it can happen. And I now see that mm-hmm. I, it was right. And so getting in the proper mindset, you know, in psychology, we it's motivational. I think it's motivational enhancers. I forget the proper name, but it's a way that you shift your brain into thinking that you can. And in mm-hmm. that way, you're ready for the neuroplasticity. It doesn't feel so effortful because, you know, mm-hmm. you, you have sort of the overall outline and, and then you're now filling in the little sections. OK, my overall mm-hmm. outline here is that I am going to do this and my brain's going to get better. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I did after I got into the motivational mindset is that I had to clean house because I didn't realize how many toxic types of people I had in my life. And I got really strict about this. You know, I realized that one of my closest, she really wasn't close, but one of my closest friends was more on the histrionic narcissist side. She was really just a selfish, rude person. And I kept her around because she was kind of fun. And I thought, you know, she was my buddy. So I cleaned house. I got rid of people who were triggering me in a bad way. Mm. Then I started my, my neuroplasticity exercises. I would do brain games that would activate my prefrontal cortex. So the games I chose for myself was 
games that involve sequencing, games that involve problem solving and speed, that I had to make a really quick decision in order to make something happen. And an example of this is Tetris. It's an old game called Tetris. Mm -hmm. Um, You Mm -hmm. have to be really quick. You have to make sure the pieces fit. And if you mess up, you know, it's going to hold, it's not going to go together. So games like Tetris, I use things like that, but as well as some others that I found that I kind of assessed and I said, is this an executive function game? And I said, yeah, I can make it into one. And then I, I did it that way. Another thing I did was I did a lot of journaling, but I did it with neuroplasticity and my frontal lobes in mind. So I did it in third person. And when you do journaling in third person and in psychology, that's called self-distancing. There's tons of research on self-distancing. I think it goes back to the 80s or something. But self-distancing activates your prefrontal cortex because it actually allows you to look at yourself almost like you're another person. And believe it or not, the brain goes into kind of problem-solving mode when it does that. And it gives you some distance from the emotion. So our emotional system takes a slight backseat Frontal lobes takes a front seat, which is what we want. And you write about what happened, but you doubt not the details of it at all. Because you don't write, then he said this, and then I said that, and why did he do this? No, not you write about how you feel about it in third person. Now, for those who have actual diagnoses of PTSD or complex PTSD, now I want them to be a bit more careful because a lot of things could trigger them, you know? So they should probably do this kind of activity under the guide of a a really good psychologist, like one who's actually trauma-informed, who's not going to be, unfortunately, like my old psychologist. (laughs) So yeah, the third person thing really helped me a lot. And it also helps not just from the the prefrontal activation, it helps from a self-compassion standpoint. Because what I hear from many of my patients is that when they have a certain attachment style, having self-compassion is hard for them. So I've heard this feels so foreign, like self-compassion sounds like such a, just a generic buzzword that means nothing to me. Like, what do you mean by that? And I realized that they couldn't feel it, you know, and that they couldn't feel it at all. And, but what they could feel was intense empathy and emotions for other people but they had very little for themselves. And so journaling in third person actually helps to build up sort of the process of self-compassion as well, because you're actually looking at this person's circumstances, but it's really you, and you can see the the pain she went through. Before I go to the next one, I'll let us chat a little bit. (laughs) Oh, I see... I'm such a student <laughs> that I'm like, you know, I was that geeky kid in the front row, like, yes, professor. Like, I'm sitting here and I'm in a grad school class and and I love my professor because you're amazing and super interesting. <laughs> um, I love it. So, you know, it's interesting. I just want to interject one thing that the self-distancing piece, which is interesting. So I had Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, who's the creator of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, on the program. And one of the ACT techniques, which is reminiscent of this, and now I love linking the neurology to it, uh-huh. he talks about defusion. So we're fused to our thoughts, we're fused to our emotions so often, and that distancing, he calls it defusion. Uh-huh. And one of the things he'll uh-huh. say is instead of like, I feel this, mm-hmm. it's like I'm having the feeling that, or... Mm. I, instead of thinking this, you, you get some distance from your thoughts and you say, I'm having the thought. Isn't that interesting? I'm having the thought yeah. that such and such. Yeah, thought. that sounds very much like a self-distancing tactic, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and so, and just to reiterate, you're saying that that activates the executive functioning mm-hmm. or the... Yeah, it activates the prefrontal cortex. And what that helps us do, you know, I talk about love smarter, not harder, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the smarter part, like get our brain engaged so that we can, like you said, problem solve right. on ourselves, so to speak. 
That's exactly what it is. It does activate the prefrontal cortex. It's, it's pretty incredible because, you know, when you're going through this whole situation, the, the emotional system kind of hijacked everything, you know, and it makes sense. It's, yeah. it's, it's so activated. It's, it's, it had to kind of protect you and be out there and be out. It's, if you were with an abuser, it had to, you know, protect you and be out front. And the frontal lobes take a back seat, but they don't just jump back into action. You have to really help it, you know. And so, I've, and so yeah. sadly, I've had patients who, um, have come to me and I, they had a, one of these relationships when they were in their 20s and they have so much shame and they're sitting in front of me in their 50s and they say, what is wrong with me that I can't let it go? You know, mm. and so I have to spend so much time explaining that you've not been intentionally holding this, you know, that shift never took place. That shift right back into the balanced brain where it's the frontal lobes is out front. Emotional system is, is right there in the back seat, but it's, it's in the back seat. It's not like out front and, and ruling and governing everything, you know, because some people live in this mode where the emotional system is out front and now they, they don't go certain places. They've decided I'll never date again because of what this person did to me 10 years ago like the emotional system just rules everything because they're so scared you know that pain mm. and and i get that but shifting the brain back into the balance again you'll live whatever life you you're going to live without one system completely dominating that's so important. I mean, this information is just gold. This is so important for all of us. And whether we're going to relate it to a bad breakup or a traumatic something from our past, or if we're just trying to be able to function and level up our functioning in on all kinds of realms. It's just important to know, I want to engage the part of my brain that is most helpful for me in this particular scenario. And in this case, trying to get our brains aligned with our heart's desire to recover and to heal and to move forward. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my Love Smarter, Not Harder IGTV. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R-K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Averill and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. So you were talking about one, you cleaned house, two, you played some brain games, and apparently video games aren't all horrible. No, no. And the crazy thing was, I was the one parent who, like, I was absolutely fine with my kids playing games all the time because I was in, you know, I was a neuropsych. And so my neuropsych training, actually, when I did my fellowship, it was an Alzheimer's disease research and cognitive rehabilitation fellowship. So I worked every day doing brain trainings on patients who had strokes and brain trauma. And so I, so we used video games with them, but they were actually yeah. specially made video games, you know, for the neuropsychologists to use on our, on our patients. And so I got to see that these games were making these people so much better. And so I was like, yeah, you guys go ahead and play, you know, play your games. I mean, nothing, you know, <laughs> violent, but you know, I loved it when right, they played right. <laughs> right, right. No, there's a difference between Tetris and some of those ones. Yeah, where they, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's these morally inverted games where they kill people and get points uh, no. and mm -hmm. they kill prostitutes and get points. Um, I don't know if it's Grand Theft Auto or one of those. I had Dr. Leonard Sachs on the program and he's a MD and PhD mm. and he looks at these morally inverted games and what kind of moral compass are we cultivating in young people when they are rewarded for doing the wrong thing. So. Yeah, that's horrible. So then you also did the journaling, which we've spoken yeah. to. So was that your three-step approach? No. Was there anything oh, no, else? No, I had, oh, 
<laughs> Karen, I had so many things going on. <laughs> there was no first step for I was hitting myself with everything but the kitchen sink. Um, so I also made sure I spent time with my friends and my family and my dogs. And I put that under intentional positive neuroplasticity because I did it on purpose. Because, you know, right after I got out of my relationship and for that whole year I was doing my therapy, I had a lot of shame going on. You know, I didn't I didn't want people, like, I feel bad. I didn't want people to know, like, how bad that relationship was and that, you know, I was there. And, and you know, like, how did, how did I mess up? All the things that you just, you know, said earlier, how you feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. But then I realized, no, 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 in order for my brain to heal, I had to make sure that my oxytocin was getting released because one of the things that oxytocin can do is that it cools down two systems of our brain. Um, and actually, they're trying to figure out how to use this with addiction, by the way. But oxytocin cools down our reward system. And for those who may not be familiar, our reward system is a system that, especially when you're just out of the relationship, makes you crave and yearn and do really wacky things like go look at their social media or want to yep. find out who the new girl is, that kind of thing. And you may think, yep. I was never that kind of person where is this coming from well it's the reward system that's doing it because it has made sort of a representation of your old partner in your brain so he's in there or she's in there and suddenly they're not there anymore and so they're like well go go get that person you know (laughs) go see what they're doing go go get it because the brain doesn't like to let go of attachments and so I knew that I was having a tiny, tiny bit of craving going on and I had stress going on. And oxytocin Mm -hmm. works wonders on stress and addictive symptoms. And so, yeah, spending time, you know, just sitting with friends. And we weren't talking about the relationship. Like, that was sort of something I banned myself from doing anymore. Like, that was over. So we just kind of sat with each other. Or I would just sit with my dogs or just be in the backyard. Just anything to get my brain getting that comfy, cozy oxytocin flowing. So that was my, I guess, fourth thing we're at now. Yeah, we're at four. And that reminds me, I did a an episode recently where I looked at some of the science of heartbreak and exactly what you're speaking to. And I, I hope they get that oxytocin connection to addiction because as you know, and as the research confirms, when we lose a romantic partner, the, the brain chemistry is not so dissimilar from someone who is craving their next hit of their drug of choice. Right as you spoke to. Mm-hmm. And so if we can, we have to recognize that our, our brain has been hijacked, essentially, mm-hmm. but we can recover. But these little drips of, let me go stalk him and I'll just see him and that'll just be a little approximation of the fix that I yeah. want. Yeah. That all that does, it's like someone going, I'll just do a little okay, bit of heroin yeah. today. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm in recovery, but just a little bit. <laughs> right? So. Exactly. Yeah. It was just the last thing you need. No, no, no. No. Yeah. So activating your oxytocin mm-hmm. was key through friends, family, petting a dog. Yeah. And these are what I love about these, Rhonda, is that these are all they're very complex in the sense that not all of us, we don't have brain imaging devices. We can't really see what's happening in our brains. And so it's very kind of scientific on the one hand. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the actual actions taken, mm-hmm. they're very manageable. Absolutely. They, these, these are free. And they all feel good. Yeah. Think about that. Like, you know, it's so painful. Like, that's one of the things I talk about in my course, you know, that healing, the various tactics you can do feel pretty good. Yeah, that's been my concern, what you mentioned before. Some of the therapeutic approaches... And it's inadvertent. No one means to. No therapist is out there like, hey, I'm going to do this regressive therapy and Mm -hmm. we'll re-traumatize my patient or my client. But the research on all that regressive therapy 
over the last like 30 years, they've come to find out it absolutely re-traumatizes. People are stuck. They get worse, not better. So this notion that we got to go dig, dig, dig and revisit it again. And we'll do a little kind of hypothetical scenario in the office, like a psychodrama. That's not helping. No, 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 no. It's very old school. It's we've advanced Mm -hmm. so far from there. You know, thankfully, fMRI and and the brain imaging studies, we get to see what's happening in there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's taken us in a totally different direction. If you're in the market for a graphic designer to help you with, well, a lot of different things, I highly recommend Sarah Jordan of Pixel Bash Designs. Sarah has a lot going on. She's a web and graphic designing, video editing, social media managing, doodling sticker maker with an Etsy shop. I reached out to Sarah when I wanted to convert some of my fave hashtags into a sticker sheet. Make it happen, take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life, of course. And true love is worth the wait. Sarah was a dream to work with. She took the time to fully understand what I was looking for and then quickly created super clever and on-brand graphics. She went above and beyond what I'd hoped for. For your next graphic design project, be sure to check out Sarah's Etsy shop at Pixel Bash Designs or find her on Instagram at The Multipassionista. Okay, so the other thing I did is I recorded mindfulness exercises for myself. I recorded some self-compassion ones. I, I forget exactly what they were, but they're very, very tailored to what I was experiencing. And what I my, my, my goal with that is, you know, with mindfulness, you're trying to like just raise your awareness and focus your attention on thoughts without judging, you know, without judging. And so I, I the self-compassion ones were really helpful because as I told you, I was feeling so badly. I kind of felt like I had a role in this too because I chose this partner, you know, and now right. I look back on it and I, and I, and I see, I had no way of knowing when I, in the first few months that he had that disorder because he was so good at cloaking it. But not only was he good at cloaking it, and I'll give a tiny bit of quick neuroscience regarding the narcissist brain, is that in the beginning, they are really interested in you. They are really excited about you because their reward system actually works normally. And that reward system, as we talked about, is what makes us feel lust and attraction, interested in people. The problem with them is that there's none of us, there's no one who can stay in that reward system heightened mode forever. You know, the butterflies kind of go away when we, you know, see the person. We don't have that feeling. Well, maybe some of us do (laughs) for years and years and years. But for the most part, it kind of fades away. And we kind of shift into this other mode, this deeper bonding. And it just feels so much more comfortable, so much better even than the initial just excitement. They don't shift into that next mode. It's just kind of over at that point. Once they lose that sort of initial excitement, it's like just kind of over for them. And so the mindfulness exercises help me kind of be more forgiving of myself. So I did a a lot of meditation. And as you would think, because I'm doing my intentional prefrontal activation, mindfulness activates and meditation activates the prefrontal cortex and has the added benefit of cooling our limbic system. So it was like a twofer (laughs) for for that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And for someone who hasn't done a a bunch of neuropsych stuff, so the limbic system is where our emotions are housed. Yes. The other thing I did, this one took me a long time to do because I didn't feel well, but it was movement. It was dance. I used to be a dancer. I used to be an NFL cheerleader for like six years. 
go Dolphins, go Eagles. <laughs> but I lost my my desire to move. I lost my desire to dance because I felt so traumatized. Like I just, I didn't want to do anything. As I started to feel better with the prefrontal activation, I realized I have to get dance going again, choreographed movement. And why? Because our frontal lobes houses our motor strip. That's where our movement is actually coming from. And so again, we want to activate that system of the brain, light it up. And so I started doing choreographed dancing again, and I just started feeling so much better. So I would do like, you know, like maybe 30 minutes a day and it was fantastic. And for those of you who are just not into dance, it may not be your thing. You can maybe take a class or go walking. It won't be as impactful, but I will tell you walking does release a great deal of serotonin, which is very calming. And I can also tell you, I've come up with my best ideas when I'm out walking the dogs at night. So I definitely know my frontal lobes are working because I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? (laughs) (laughs) So a little dance therapy for yourself, essentially. Yeah, movement. Mm -hmm. It's really good if if it's choreographed move because you have to remember the steps. Because remember, we want to activate, we want to just take advantage of the frontal lobes as much as possible. So choreograph, which is meaning that you follow a choreographer. If you have a video or something like that and they teach you in one and two and three and four, that's what I mean, that kind of thing. So why choreographed dance is better is because you have to remember sequence of this happens first and that happens next. And then you have to also put your body in different you know, positions, then your arm, then your leg, then your foot, then your hips, you know, and that takes a great deal of frontal lobe um, and cerebellar um, activation. Though obviously the whole brain is working all the time, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you really, really are honing in on those two areas. And that's going to help you without, you're not talking about the abuser, you're not talking about your trauma, but guess what? You're activating the parts of the brain that's going to help you regulate your emotional system. I love it. I, it's just so proactive. It's taking charge. It's using the science to know that you don't have to be a victim to what you went through, yeah. no matter how bad that abuse was. Yeah. And I, there's a tension here, Rhonda. I, I'm sure you experienced it with your patients and those you work with. Sometimes people come at me because I'm, I'm so CBT. I'm all like, we got to take charge of our thoughts because when we take charge of our thoughts, then we know that our emotions flow from our thoughts. And sometimes people feel that... I get a little pushback sometimes that, well, you're not validating someone's pain. And I'm a psychologist, so I should be validating pain. And I I don't think that that's the case. I think the case is to validate pain. But then the choice is, am I going to stay here forever? Am I going to wallow? Am I going to adhere to a victim mentality? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about women, of course, you and I in our space, and we want to empower women. To me, teaching someone that yeah, you were hurt, so you have every right to remain a victim for the rest of your life. That's not empowering. It just—it's just not. No, I don't—I no. don't think that's loving either. As someone who deeply cares for my community, and I know you do too, mm-hmm. I don't think that's loving. But what happens is, I think people go, "Well, wait, I can't." You know, like you talked about. First, you had to get into the place where you could even start to take on these steps. Yeah. How do they get? from that place of just utter defeat and like you said like not even recognizing themselves a deconstructive version of themselves to then how do they get to the point where they can even embrace something like what we're talking about here you mentioned that you had to get your mindset in a a frame of mind that yes i'm open to recognizing that there are tangible steps i can take Mm -hmm. 
to move back to getting myself back, reclaiming myself. Yeah, you have. Yeah, you have to have that mindset. And CBT is is tons of that's all about positive neuroplasticity. So, yeah, that's that's a fantastic strategy for sure. Yeah, the the awareness you have to kind of have some awareness, but then also know what you want to take that next step and say, you know what? Yeah, I, I've got to get into this different mode of thinking. It may take a little bit of time. So it may not be, let's say, a month after your relationship and you're saying, OK, right. let's jump into it. it it's going to take some time. We get that because the brain is like in shock. You know, one of the, the bad things about our brain is that it, it kind of rebels for a little bit. Like it doesn't want to let even a bad relationship go. And that's because right. clearly the emotional system doesn't really judge was this good, was this bad. That's your frontal lobes that, that tells you, whoa, this was a bad guy. This is a crazy girl. You know, I, we, we are so right. much better off without her or without him. Right. But because that the frontal lobes is almost like on sleep mode and compared to the intensity of that emotional system, you're gonna you're not gonna get that logical behavior. That's why people wonder why do people stay with people who are abusive? They look at it like it's just a simple decision to walk away. It is not. It is a lot of things, <laughs> but a simple decision to walk away. I can I can attest to that. But so anyway, self-awareness was one of the key things I needed in my healing and it helped me through my healing because I was ready to be honest with myself. And so self-awareness, in, in my opinion, I don't know people, psychologists describe it differently. I describe it as, you know, having um, insight into who you are, but, but also gaining insight into who you are. So being really open to whatever you find out about yourself in this healing process. So, I mean, let's say that in this healing process, you realize, oh my gosh, it seems like I had an insecure attachment style going on there. Well, okay, don't feel bad about that. Embrace that information and be grateful you learned that information because guess what? Now you can do something about it, which is as Karen right. talked about. Let's do something <laughs> about this, you know, and, and make that better. So I, I really don't see how healing can take place without self-awareness and self-care. And, and it sounds so kind of hokey, but it is true. You have to have those things because even if you have your own therapist, it is so contingent upon you yeah. to feel that and make this stuff happen. Which you can, and you can, <laughs> you can. Yeah. And it, well, it's, it's very similar to one of the adages I remember from my master's in clinical psych when I was training to become a therapist and one of the things one of the professors said was we can't work harder than our clients, mm. you know, you know a, a therapist can't work harder than your client. And that's exactly what you're saying. Yes. It's still contingent upon you. Yeah. And it's, and it's a philosophy for living. Do you believe, you know, and I talk a ton about beliefs in my community as well. Do you believe that, that when people have adversity and when hard, hard, very, very painful things happen, that that's the end of the story. Mm. I mean, I think aren't our aren't our stories of triumph and people overcoming? Isn't that one of the reasons we tell these stories, right? To inspire mm -hmm. ourselves, even when we go shoot that story that I used to love about the person who climbed the mountain and got the other side, even though no one thought they could. Now I need to apply that same motivation to myself here. Right. And, and right, a couple months after a wickedly painful breakup, someone probably doesn't have that available to them at that time mm -hmm. but eventually I hope that what you're doing bringing the science of it basically saying let's use our brain and let's strengthen mm -hmm. it in the way that will make this a lot easier and like you said before fun and pleasant mm -hmm. than what we think it we think it's going to be so arduous yes. but if we can get our brain in line with our philosophy for recovery and healing and hope 
it can make all the difference. Absolutely. I want to say to those who are right out of this and, you know, they're saying, well, what Karen and Rhonda are talking about, I'm not not there yet. Then I would recommend that they only focus on the support part of it from other people. You might need to be propped up right now with the support of the people Mm -hmm. who love you. Or if you don't have them in your, your personal life, then in your online community, find a safe online community that that you can be with just some individuals that are going to give you that support because oxytocin can kind of help cool things down in your mind in your brain Mm, that's so important and of course just speaks to all the years of support group type of work in the therapeutic realm Mm -hmm. and and i love just you everything you're saying i'm going oh yeah i've thought about it from the clinical setting and now you're saying but here's the science behind it this is why a support group works for example getting that oxytocin Mm -hmm. and that's something that we we miss so much when we leave a partner we don't get that skin on skin contact like we used to Mm -hmm. we're not having those oxytocin surges so we have to go find a different way to get our little fix so to speak of oxytocin. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. So what do you say to someone? I do have concerns that with diagnostic inflation that we see in our community right now, I'll have people say, well, I have anxious attachment. I have anxious attachment, meaning this is a fixed chronic reality of my way of being with others. And to me, no. that's so limiting. It, that yes, and it's not true. So what do you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, right. So yeah, speak to that. Attachment styles—they're changeable, <laughs> uh, right. and they're all, because they're a reflection of other brains functioning. So absolutely, you can change them. And the crazy thing is, your attachment style can change based upon the person that walks in the room. Right. I tend to have lean more on the secure attachment style, but however, you get a psychopath in here. And that person's like in my life for a little bit. Wow. Will I behave like somebody who may have the the patterns of of, of an insecure style? Absolutely, because they activate our brain in certain ways. And so, no, those things aren't set in stone at all. I want you to speak to that because I think they are frameworks and models that can be useful to help understand a particular relationship and who you are with a particular person at a particular time. And that is fine. Mm -hmm. But for us to then label ourselves, diagnose ourselves, so to speak, and then enter new relationships going, well, I have anxious attachment, so this is what I can expect of myself. This is what I know will happen. Oh my gosh, how about just living up to your own 
really negative expectation. <laughs> how about, like you said, how about going, hey, I learned something about myself. I, yeah, like anyone, I'm going to have some anxiety kick in when I'm with a narc. How about if I'm not with a narc? Wow. How about if I'm with someone who's mature emotionally yes. and, and secure in their own attachment approach? I'm able to then settle into my own secure style. Yeah. I just don't like these fixed terms because I know the power of language and the power of our mindset. Our minds, I mean, the placebo effect shows us in every single study. If I tell myself that this is going to happen, it often will happen. That will be my experience. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. I've been, unfortunately, because I guess it's really big in the narcissistic abuse world, which is kind of the the, the bucket I'm, I'm in, uh, is the whole codependent thing. And so I'm getting yeah. challenged. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> right and left with yeah but I'm codependent you know so this can't help me or and I'm like oh my goodness stop referring to yourself in that manner <laughs> you know and so yes. I was like, what about the fact that you know when you're around somebody who is abusing you you're reacting to that abuse our brains react to everything so obviously you're going yeah. to be a decompensated version of yourself obviously you're going to be trying to help this person because as human beings when we love somebody and they're suffering like if my son is suffering I'm gonna want to help him like hey what's going on mm-hmm here and so that doesn't make you codependent so yeah it's huge in my area I don't try to fight it I just made maybe one or two videos that said (laughs) you're not necessarily codependent if you stayed you know and and so but I'd kind of leave it at that I'd like to ask you to keep fighting it (laughs) Uh, it's too big for me Karen I No, I think with your community I think we need to keep maybe fighting isn't the right word but keep presenting Another vantage point mm-hmm. that to me, going back to what we spoke to earlier, is much more empowering. Yeah, I yeah. think we can look at our lives as seasons. And as you spoke to, yes, if we are with a certain type of person, we will have elements of us that are sadly reinforced, but they're very, they're, I just don't like the pathologizing yes, of everything. Yes. It's not pathological to want to help someone who has an addiction and you didn't find out they had an addiction until six months in. Right. And they You're were very charming because addicts yes. tend <laughs> Yeah, and they were right. And then six months in, you realize that, oh my gosh, I'm doing some things that probably aren't healthy. And then a year later, you unpack it all. But do we need to label you codependent such that you go, okay, I'm sure I'm doomed to date addicts for the rest of my life because that's how I'm wired. Oh my gosh, this conversation. So I'm sorry, I'm having, now I'm having a moment because I need (laughs) to have this conversation with another psychologist. I was just like, wow. Because, yeah, I, I keep hearing it and they're calling themselves that. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is right. It's not right. Yeah. And I get that the label feels comforting to some degree. You go, OK, this is a thing. Other people have experienced it. Mm-hmm. There's a treatment plan. And all that is great. And at the same time, mm-hmm. what is also true, two things can be true at once. Yeah. The other thing that is also true is that maybe the relational dynamics of this particular context or union but that does not it's not a sentence exactly even genetic determinism which is something that i'm very concerned about even with all these 23 and me and dna stuff and people are like oh i found out my dna says that i'm gonna like black coffee (laughs) i'm going i'm like there's also a thing called epigenetics Uh that means it's the nature nurture thing and i love this people are like nature versus nurture i'm like there's no versus it's an interaction all the time Mm -hmm. when we get this idea that this is what my genes are predetermined which gets to the emotional realm because people go oh i've been told i have a neurotransmitter imbalance so i'm going to always need this medication and i'm thinking 
Well, from now on, I'll say, go check out Dr. Rhonda's work because <laughs> she's going to teach you how to rewire your brain yeah. and get your levels exactly where they need to be. This doesn't mean that you were born with it. But yes, maybe a season of your life, the trauma you experienced had an impact on your neurological functioning. Right. It is not fixed forever. No. Let's do something about no. it. No. If you're, you know, if you and your listeners would have seen me 10 years ago, right after, you would have been like, who is that woman? Because I was... Oh, I was so traumatized. I was so hurt and so sad and didn't work even. Had to take, you know, all the time away that I, I needed because I was so decompensated. And and now look at me. And it's because of neuroplasticity. It's not because of a drug. I didn't take anything. I didn't, you know, do anything in that regard. I just worked on myself. To me, this is the most empowering message we can give our communities, truly. Yeah. Because whether it's a romantic breakdown or whether it's a career path that has been roadblocked or whether it's a global pandemic. I mean, oh, yeah. There are, yeah. there are things that are, we, we will be confronted with obstacles time and time again in life. And, and what will we choose? Will we choose to see ourselves as damaged irrevocably or will we choose to see ourselves as able to truly empower ourselves. And what I love about your work is bringing the science in so that it's not just me going, rah, 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 you can do it. Because some people are like, okay, Susie Sunshine, you know, pipe down <laughs> with your positivity and your glass is half full because it feels really half empty right now. But you're like, okay, Susie Sunshine or not, we're talking science here, people. Yeah. And then we all have to sit up and pay attention when we're talking science. Mm -hmm. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast. And I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May, tim at loveandlifemedia.com. So Rhonda, share with my listeners, you have a program to help them accelerate their recovery if they've been through trauma of this sort. Let them know a little bit about that. Yeah. A few years ago, I decided that I wanted to kind of put everything in a, in a package deal. And so it runs them through different brain systems that get activated when we are with an emotional abuser. Um, I talk a little bit about narcissistic personality disorder, but it's really mostly about the survivor. And I walk them through what got me feeling fine now. And I walk them through the things that they need to do. But not only that, before we even get to what they could do to be better, I focus on what happened, what's happening in the brain, why they feel in that decompensated state. And I go 
I came up with this theory where I think it's specific neuropathway systems that are um, having trouble. And I tell them what those systems are that I suspect are having trouble and have a little quiz, you know, before so they can see if that system is applicable to them, like the reward system and all that. And mm-hmm. then after they learn about the systems, and it's a ton of neuroscience. So if you don't like science, this is not the course <laughs> for you. It's, I get into the chemistry, I get into the sections, the pathways. It's a lot of neuroscience. And then after that, we shift gears and we talk about implementing neuroplasticity. So yeah, I try to just give them what really helped me through this. Because when I went through this, you know, I went to, as I said, a regular psychologist. And by the way, she called me codependent. Yeah, she literally said that word. Yeah. Oh, my blood is boiling. (laughs) Yeah, I I was so shocked. That was actually my last session with her because I I don't, you know, neuropsychology, we don't even recognize that that word. It's just not a part of Mm. our, our field. And so I was like, but you don't really know me i don't remember taking any psychological tests i don't remember taking mm. an mpi you don't like, how do you know like, you don't know anything about me how am i codependent and she's like because you were with an abuser i was like wow oh. so this is my fault okay there we go <laughs> there we go and you're always gonna be codependent i'm sure the rest of your relationships for the rest of your life are gonna be codependent yep. all of them have been codependent <laughs> i'm being sarcastic yep. not a single one afterwards by the way <laughs> No, exactly. Case in point. Mic drop. (laughs) First of all, I wish that your program had been available to me with one of my, well, a couple of my really wicked breakups. I want to take your program now just to geek out on all this science. Learn more. Of course. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. But so where do they go? Where do listeners go if they want to take advantage of this? Now, it's kind of a long name. So I gave you the link. But the main location is called Neurosagacity. And it's kind of a mm-hmm. word I made up. Neuro meaning, you know, the brain. And sagacity meaning, meaning wisdom. But if you don't want to go there, go to my main website. My main website is totally free. And that's called Neuro Instincts. And there is where I have hundreds of articles, hundreds of videos. And if you want to take the course, then you can click the link that takes you to the course. Like whatever you want. But yeah, I have tons of stuff just to kind of get you warmed up about what is going on with these situations with abuse and with the brain without you having to to purchase anything. That's such a wonderful resource. I'm so glad to know about it to refer people your way. I hope my listeners will take advantage of of this, especially those who are going through a heartbreak right now or trying to recover from some narcissistic abuse. This has been so valuable, Dr. Freeman. Thank you so much for joining me today. And let everyone know where they can, you mentioned your website, but are you active on social media? Where should they find you there? Yes, I love Instagram. So definitely follow me on Instagram. And Karen, I love your stuff on Instagram. You see all my little likes and hearts. But um. (laughs) Yeah, on Instagram, it's Neuro Instincts. I don't use my, my handle isn't my, my name is actually Neuro Instincts on Instagram. Perfect. Well, again, I so appreciate your time. I have enjoyed every minute of this. I believe it's a truly empowered approach that's grounded in science. And I'm just thrilled to share this with my community. And I would love to have you back on sometime soon to talk about more science-based neurology stuff. That'd be great. Absolutely. Sure. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is neuroplasticity is your superpower. Harness it to get back to you. I have loved this conversation because as a psych nerd, I love seeing the science behind why cognitive behavioral therapy works. 
We understand now that when we take charge of our thoughts to take charge of our life, we're actually harnessing the power of neuroplasticity such that we're activating our frontal lobe, where we're rational, where we can make sense, where we're logical, and quieting the limbic system a bit so that it's not so active, causing us to become irrational and overly emotional. Thanks as always for joining me today. I know you're walking away with some great science-based tools for leveling up in love and life. Be sure to head over to my website and sign up for my newsletter so you'll be the first to know what's going on in the love and life community. And if you have 30 seconds, I promise you that's all it takes. If you don't mind going to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating, and writing just a sentence or two about the program, that helps other people find the love and life community. And I would appreciate it so much. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. And now we have the neuroscience behind it. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.